0: From a place of quiet, where we all are now by default, where do you put your attention? How mindful are you about it? And what do you bring to your work as a creator that helps you get through and into the ears and spirits and hearts of people you wanna reach?
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question. How does an artist find their voice? I am your host, Nicholas Krolak. If you like what you hear today, you can keep up to date with my travels through sonic space at my website, nicholaskrolak.com or on Instagram, at Nicholas underscore Krolak. Today's episode is brought to you by Riccardi's Violin Shop. I've been bringing my basses to Rob Riccardi for years, from basic setups, rehairing bows, and gluing seams, to the major overhaul he recently did on my carved bass. Rob has always kept my basses in great shape and sounding their best. Located in South Jersey, a stone's throw away from Philadelphia is an added bonus that will save you time and money for all your string repair needs. Check them out at Ricardiviolinshop.com. My guest today is Tom Moon, saxophonist and music writer based in Philadelphia, alumnus of the University of Miami and veteran of the Maynard Ferguson Orchestra. He put his career as a musician on hold to focus on music journalism. He was the resident music critic at the Philadelphia Inquirer from 1988 to 2004 and has contributed to other publications, Rolling Stone, GQ, Blender, and Spin, as well as NPR's All Things Considered. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, One Thousand Recordings to Hear Before You Die, and a contributor to other books including The Final Four of Everything. In the years after the Inquirer, Moon has refocused his career as a musician, becoming a staple of the Philadelphia jazz scene. His current project, Ensemble Novo, is inspired by the music made in Brazil during the 1960s and 70s. Tom Moon, thanks for taking the time to be on the show.
0: It's great to be with you, Nick.
1: It feels kind of weird talking to you on the phone. I don't think we've like ever really talked on the phone. <laughs> you know, we're su- you're such a, like a in-person like hang. Right. It feels kind of weird. <laughs> I feel like I should have a a glass of bourbon in my hand. <laughs>
0: Well, I always feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) But But no, uh, it's true. And, you know, we among the many things that we're missing right now in life. I was talking about this yesterday with our mutual friend, Ryan McNeely, just the humanizing stuff that you talk about between songs on a gig, just the, the, the normal everyday relating. And I'm I know that people are addressing grief in many ways as a result of this virus and that is one of them and i think that's a real thing you know people who are musicians are very familiar with that but i think even just ordinary people can relate to the idea that when you're working you come to a a logical endpoint, and you know there's there's room for a moment or two of conversation about whatever before you go on to the next thing
1: yeah Absolutely. I feel like that's so, so huge in the uh, musician culture, especially with jazz and the, the jam sessions. I I just feel very strange about not having been to a jam session or thinking of something like, oh, I'll tell so-and-so when I see him at the, oh, no, okay. You know, yeah, I got to go call him up. And I was talking to um, our buddy, Zach Martin, the other day, on, and the same thing happened to me. I was like, oh, I'll just talk to him on the, oh, and the, so I, I called them up and you know we were talking about some some things we were working on and you know how much just time we all have now and uh some of the things that we're working on to i wouldn't say just past the time but um uh some of the things that were like on the back burner for a, like a while and zach put it this way it's like now everything's on the front burner you know so uh, i was wondering i was wondering like what what kind of stuff you were doing um Any little projects or anything that that you've been doing while the quarantine is going on?
0: Well, I, of course, have a list, as I think everyone does. And, you know, the first one for me relates directly to the title of your podcast, this idea of developing voice. And I've spent, even before the virus, in in early January, I got a, a little synthesizer and i've been playing with that over drones and developing some songwriting i guess you would call it although song is a, is a very loose term for what it is mm-hmm. so far but just trying to write some some environments and to think about playing in a context that is not just head solo type type tune construction mm-hmm. and it's been very interesting you know it, um One of the things that happens when time opens up is you suddenly go, okay, what's like the big project that I can work on? What's something I can really take on? And these are small. You know, I task myself to start with developing a vamp of some sort, four or eight bars, sometimes longer, or something that just is one chord drone. And then with my horn to try to get uh, get something going that is melodic. On top of that, and you know, as someone who, in my playing since I started to play again, was very focused on just the rudimentary, most rudimentary stuff about time, about chord changes, all that, to to sort of go into this whole other direction and just say, you know what, I need to see what a what kind of a melodic presence I have, if any. (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) there may not be uh, at the end of the day. And I'm also trying not to evaluate it, which is a whole nother separate topic. But just sort of doing it and generating stuff. And, you know, it's it's very interesting. Of course, a lot of us are, you know, taking the time to practice, uh, like to really Mm -hmm. like sort of have longer duration practice sessions. And I'm doing that, too. But a a chunk of it, at least at the beginning of the the time when I sit down, is this kind of work. And again, it's not. I'm not sure it's something I would share, but it's been a really interesting sort of set of muscles to try and develop after really not doing that forever.
1: Yeah, I I bet that that's going to pay off some big dividends later on, whether or not you share the actual work, just going through that writing process on on a small scale that reminds me of um this book by uh, Anne Lamott. oh yeah uh her, her book's called bird by bird oh, i know that book it's a great book that, that is great and super funny and kind of dark too and one of her big suggestions is to um write within a one inch frame mm-hmm. like visualize like a one inch picture frame and try to write something real small like a little scene mm-hmm. She was talking about novels, obviously, but just a little a feeling, a little bit of dialogue. And if you just do that little bit, you'll have something and maybe it'll lead to something else. And then it's, it's a really good way of uh, working on that process. And what uh, synthesizer are you working with?
0: So it's a Roland Jupiter XM, which is a little baby. It's 37 mini keys, and it has a lot of the old vintage Roland sounds in it. So it has a Jupiter and a Juno, you know, basically like sort of scaled down sound engines from each of the old legacy synths. So just from the standpoint of like those synthesizer strings, and it has an arpeggiator in it, so you can basically just get like this wonderful single chord kind of a lake view pool of sound and then mm. you know my thinking is first of all I'm I'm a relatively terrible keyboard player I can play a ranger piano and I and I do write when I write tunes I write them on the piano but for this it's very nice to be able to just play this have it hold and sustain and then work over it I mean our, you know, a lot of people have done that repeatedly over the years as part of their practice. Chris Potter talks about that. Our friend Sam Greenfield does that. And sometimes it's really aimed at composition and sort of unearthing a melody. But also sometimes it's just tonally very interesting to sort of play a root for a while and Mm. just really like live in that sound and then play the fifth or something like that. So at first... I would do it and I would have some sort of bebop syntax in the middle of it, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I found myself not enjoying that and and also really like feeling it was not appropriate to the the environment of whatever the vamp was. But then to go from that into this thing where, all right, I'm just going to pare things down to something very basic is wonderful. Uh, Again, it's not really about a result. This is compost. We're always, (laughs) as musicians, we're always in the process, and writers too, and Anne Lamott talks about this, of like sort of seeding what we do every day with inspiration and ideas and sort of coming back to things and churning the soil again. And that's a very powerful thing because in our regular lives, we don't always spend the time to just sort of like do that and then come back to the exact same place the next day. And that there's so much awfulness about what this is, this Mm self-imposed like quarantine period. But there is something about taking the time to do that and Mm. to come back to where you were, pick up where you were the day before and do the same thing or uh, start in the same mode or anything like that. And, having that sort of day after day, again, it may not lead to a tune, but it may it may lead to something. And the idea for me anyway, is is to let that process just kind of work for a while and see what I learn and, you know, sort of record some of them. But it's in no way something that I'm considering that I would share in a large way. I put a couple of little loops on Instagram and, you know. Almost just as proof of life, not necessarily as (laughs) proof of art. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. You mentioned um, kind of turning over the the soil. And a a thing that has impressed me about you over the years is your variety of, of musical input. Like you're always listening to new stuff. You're always going outside of whatever false boundary genre, whatever and you always have a, a, a fresh take on what's going on so like when we play a gig together that's the thing I always look forward to is like what's Tom listening to right now like what perspective on something does he have that like I'm not hip to yet that is just around the corner so what, what have you been listening to lately and what's kind of impressing you about what's coming out
0: Actually I've been in the other direction for the most part. Uh I'll speak about a couple of new records but um a lot of my listening right now has been and I'm gonna pronounce her name wrong. Yoshida I think the, the classical pianist has a cycle of all the Schubert piano music and it's mm. like 8 CDs and it's the it's just beautiful renderings of the concertos and some little improvisations and stuff. And I've really been in that. I've tried to uh, listen to some of that music every day, just piano music from, Mm. you know, whatever, the Romantic era. And then also do the thing again. These are all luxuries, right? Because we we don't usually do this kind of inquiry, but hearing the same thing like on two days in a row and and like Mm. sort of forcing the ear into what i missed yesterday kind of thing mm-hmm. and we can do that i mean y- you know i've certainly done that with great records and jazz and great records and pop and what happens to me when that ha- when i do that is what i thought the the limits of the canvas of the piece or the recording suddenly expand and i realized that there were things that were essential to the architecture of the piece that I didn't quite get. I mean, Wayne Shorter's tunes are a perfect example of that. You know, we study them, you hear Speak No Evil, and that tune, it is a set of stairs, and every time you sort of revisit it, you hear something else about the, the way those guys played on that day, and then you think about other recordings of it, and, you know, you sort of then go back to the original after five or six stair steps and you hear something else and to me that kind of listening is uh, it's really important and it's hard to do it's a very active kind of listening and it but it's also like this thing that will expand your your view if you let it so that there's that for pop i just did a thing on all things considered about this ambient record and we the conceit of the piece was you know, we all need some tranquility right now, right? And Brian Eno and his brother Roger Eno had been doing this longtime collaboration by email where Roger would send MIDI files of sketches of tunes and then Brian would sort of flesh them out, often just with ambient synth textures behind them. And so they went back and forth and they've been doing this since like 20, 2005 or something, but they mm. finally developed an album's worth of the, these things, and they're very sati-like. You know, they have they're very slow, but they're calm. And mm. I found myself going to that record a lot, and uh, you know, I've recommended it to people because out of the conversation that we're all having about, all right, are we anxious? How do we confront our anxiety? How do we work with it? How do we beat it? And music, of course, is one of the great ways to do that. And you don't necessarily need ambient music for that purpose. But Eno mm-hmm. you know, is somebody who really understands how to make a soundscape and stuff like that. And, and so off of that record, since I worked on that, I ended up going back through a bunch of the records he made with Fripp, Another Green World, and his own before and after science records like that. And then his ambient series, which are all really interesting records.
1: Yeah. Have have you ever checked out his Oblique Strategies cards? Those are great. (laughs) They're
0: great. They're great. And so one of the people I was having a conversation with a, a friend of mine who heard this thing on NPR and was asking me about other records. And he shared one that he recently got reacquainted with that I hadn't thought about in years, but it's excellent for this purpose. It's Keith Jarrett's Spirits. Do you know mm-hmm. this it, yeah, wh- yeah, yeah. where he plays like some har- uh, harpsichord and, you know, it's like solo work, but different from his solo piano concerts. And mm-hmm. I put that on the other day. I was like, whoa, I forgot all about how potent this is again in this way of like sort of drawing you into a sound field and then sort of holding you there, even if what he's doing doesn't change much from minute one to minute three or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I'm hoping one of the silver linings to this whole thing is a bigger appreciation for meditation in general, Um, whether it be through listening to music as a catalyst for meditation or, you know, just regular meditation. Yeah, I think I think it could really help the world a lot.
0: Along those lines, I want to say something else because I'm doing that, and you know, I'm curious if you felt this, and I am pretty sure some of your listeners will have also felt this, that as we're like sort of confronting the endless menu of choices of what to listen to, what to pursue as far as like TV and movies and everything, how about just a moment of awe for how much work is being produced in our culture on a regular basis? And I would include podcasting in that and and obviously literature and nonfiction writing. When the world stops like it has, I've found myself thinking a lot about attention and the way we ask for attention from our potential audiences, and then also where we put our attention as consumers of art and everything else. And on one level, it's just staggering the amount of work that is coming out on a weekly basis. And, you know, I see it as a music critic, before I started to play again, like sort of working doggedly for many different outlets, I would get inundated with these links to people's records and stuff. And I still do, but thankfully a little bit less. But th- this thought of just how much there is out there, that has its own consequence in terms of when you're tapping someone on the shoulder and say, saying, hey, check this out you know it can be good and bad because you that know. person is probably not in the the position of being receptive to that necessarily all the time maybe not at all and then as a consumer again you're just confronted with this incredible endless smorgasbord of of possibilities for your time and you know now that we're slow like, let's really think about that. <laughs> you know, I feel like the, the notion of where we put our attention and how and the kind of attention we give to stuff. I mean, honestly, it can be heartbreaking to encounter some of these amazing records that don't really have a chance in the broad commercial marketplace, but are beautiful records. And you you hear something like, like this guy, this drummer in New York, Casa Overall, has a record mm-hmm. called I yeah. Think I'm Good, which is a really cool record. It's kind of all over the place stylistically, and it's it's got the spirit of of urban life in America right now in it in a very hip way. The chance for him to get an audience outside of his already large but still confined to mostly improvised music audience. You know, it should not be that way. People should hear Mm -hmm. this kind of a record. So, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. Just the idea of from a place of quiet where we all are now by default, where do you put your attention? How uh, mindful are you about it? And what do you bring to your work as a creator that sort of helps you get – through and into the ears and spirits and hearts of people you want to reach.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, I, I agree, I agree with, with a lot of that. Uh, um, I feel like attention, attention is the like the currency. currency. Yes, it is of of our time, and, and everyone's everyone's competing for it. And, and especially, especially, you, you know, things budget. like Instagram, social, social media, media, Facebook, all those things. Are, are totally designed to just be to just bottomless pits, pits right. of your attention.
0: Right. And don't you think that there are also, you know, um, because there's so much of it, everything is encouraged to be a quick response. You mm-hmm. know, as we know from the discipline of trying to uh, communicate through music, it's not instant. It's not something that you you understand or appraise as a, oh, I like this, oh, I don't like this in within a matter of a few minutes. And unfortunately that's the reality that that we have as an audience. The audience does not necessarily go beyond that. That's where mm-hmm. they start and stop.
1: Yeah. I feel like that that's why it is very important for us as performers to have the audience leave with a feeling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know? Because you're absolutely right. The the music we play is not instant gratification, and but I feel like this is a theory of mine. I I don't have any actual proof of it. You know, my I do not have uh, a zillion fans or anything because of this theory. But we'll see. Um, But I think uh, if you leave them with some sort of feeling, hopefully a positive feeling, they'll they will remember that. Yeah. Remember what they left with. Like I, I left feeling a certain way, and that was. I feel like that's like the re- currency. And I'm putting out a, an album at the end of May, which is a whole big ball of stress in my life right now. But I was talking to a publicist from the the label that's putting it out, and she was gone kind of going over my my story for like the one sheet and the mm-hmm. press releases and whatnot, and she was very i would say surprised that my music was actually about anything you know and it seemed like she came to the conversation like ready to kind of try to pry out some sort of narrative because there's so much uh music i feel like especially in the in the jazz world that's just about itself that's right it's just about like this these chord changes, or this technical thing, or this or that, or some very ins- insular insider information that's only among musicians of a certain clique or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I don't know. I was never, never really good at that. So uh, <laughs> I'm trying to try to make my stuff about something so that you know, people come away with something, some sort of feeling about about existence, I guess.
0: Truly, and and you know, I mean, there's that great Maya Angelou. Angelou quote about that very thing people won't remember what you said but they'll remember Mm. how they were made to feel by what you said and that is the whole thing and anymore if what you say and this you know again i love a lot of what's happening right now that comes out under the general genre designation of jazz or uh, my favorite is jazz or jazz adjacent a lot of it is as you say it's like it feels very much like math problems and there is not a spiritual or a guiding idea that that is addressing something other than where the music is right now which it's kind of backwards when you think about a love supreme came out of what John Coltrane wanted in music, like he was seeking something that did not exist in it, a way of communicating that had not really happened uh, or had not been developed in the way that he he wanted to hear it. And that's like, I mean, obviously, John Coltrane is a high bar, but that idea is not that hard to do. And that's scalable. And that the the work that happens now needs to address what it feels like to be alive now and uh, have mm-hmm. something in it that is that gets beyond whatever the technical amazingness of the work itself is. Because, you know, the fact is, not myself, but a lot of people who are working in this music are incredibly f- fluid, uh, technically adept musicians. And that is obviously a part of this, but it is not in itself an end.
1: Yeah. yeah. You Do you think that, that as a result of the... the- the kind of sticks and carrots that the infrastructure of jazz jazz provides, like it, it kind of makes sense to me that it's like that because if you're trying to get uh, an audience, the easiest audience to get is other musicians, you know. And the easiest way to get other musicians to listen to you is to be the most technically adept.
0: Right. To be astounding in some way like that. That's right.
1: Yeah. But I feel like then it becomes a question, can you scale that up? You know, because like, say for example, in, in Philly, you're the top, you know, person on one's instrument in Philly, and all the musicians, you have all of them looking up to you and coming to your shows and listening to you. But then how do you scale that up to a, A bigger audience outside of your particular scene right and then okay you've done that and then you're on the festival circuit and getting the bigger gigs then how do you get outside of of that i feel like when it comes to scaling up after that initial phase that's where it attacks itself it makes it harder for you to scale up
0: so i understand because of the way the art is that got you there in the first place is that what you're saying
1: yeah 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 the way the reward system is kind of yeah. set up
0: well i think that this is interesting to be talking about this now because we don't know what of that whole whole infrastructure is going to survive the, yeah that and, was
1: going to be one of my next uh <laughs> lines of inquiry how, how do you see this playing out well but,
0: yeah. so let's answer that first because i mean already This whole world of improvised music is in this place that we're talking about clamoring for attention with people who are incredibly adept as artists and who, for a variety of very good reasons, having to do with the way the media is and everything we were just saying about the way people are making their minds up about art on social media, don't really have a chance to be appreciated in that form like or in that forum. So we have to hope that there are other ways to reach people. Well, of course, now the live way is not open and that's the best way for a lot of music. I mean, one of the things that, you know, I've sort of kept a little bit of a journal since this quarantine started. And one of the first things I found myself writing about was the vibrational feeling of making sound together with people. And mm-hmm. people who are in our audiences are just in the spaces, uh, you know, what I do, I'm not really I'm not really asking for an audience. I'm just playing in a in a restaurant. But even there, they may not be actively listening. We may be the farthest thing from their minds as they're enjoying being out and sharing a drink and food with friends, but they are getting it. And the part of the reason, some of these places are so wonderful and important to us as musicians is not because the platform's the best, but it's because it offers the chance to share this vibrational thing. And it really only works. And this is true at all levels of music. It only works if there are people to receive it. And you hear these rock bands talking about how, wow, you know, this was an amazing night because people in the room were so about it. We've all been in concert situations where we've been part of that as spectators or not spectators, but participants by our presence. And that I think that that is a key thing. And so if we can't encounter it live, then what will remain of the record radio, you know, know, the rest of the business infrastructure? I'm very hopeful that live will come back and People will discover how much they have missed this vibrational thing I'm talking about. But, you know, in the longer term, the reordering of the whole way this stuff happens, it's almost inevitable. I mean, already we've been talking for years about how Spotify as a sort of gatekeeper and of music and facilitator of the exchange of ideas of art for uh eyeballs and and ears is not working out well for artists. So if our job is to document and to bring to the world our thinking about what it means to be alive and something that people can take away a feeling from, we are going to need some sort of infrastructure to do that beyond our immediate friend group and I don't know how that's going to look. I don't think it's going to look like it did before this. I think it's going to take a long time for us as a community, and I'm not talking about Philly, I'm talking about the community of creators around the world, arrive at a way of facilitating this exchange of ideas for some sort of remuneration. And there too, you know, it's like the uh, GoFundMe or Patreon models. Are, are good especially in the in the sense of if you want to see this kind of thing you have to help support it i think that that is going to become like the basically the sort of level one of how to how to communicate as an artist in this whatever this world ends up looking like
1: yeah i i very much agree with you and live music is gonna gonna be back it's gonna happen Yes. When, in what way and um i don't know but I don't feel like there's anything that can really keep that down in humanity. That's just like a need That's we have. Right. My concern is like which institutions or even players are going to be there when the dust settles. Right. You know, well, like what clubs are going to be able to, to weather the storm and also what players are going to put themselves out there again.
0: Right. And And so you know? along with that, we have to look at what institutions now prior to this were really helping develop the art, you know, I mean, I feel like jazz at Lincoln Center is pretty safe, right? They're not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. They're still doing what they're doing, but really in terms of facilitating the, and, and facilitating is a tough word because I'm not saying that they need to be in the, the grassroots, like, you know, hire a quintet in every city kind of level, but they're not interested in the level on which this music exists as a social thing. And the model that these large institutions and a lot of the grant-funded music uh, starts from is we are taking this into a concert. Like, our purview is the concert hall and up. And, you know, that's great, and that does need to exist, but where we're at right now is things are, are so flattened that we may really need to just rely on our wits and our own ability to document and not look to any of these sort of structural entities the way the way we have and that's not you know that that may actually be a very positive thing and the idea that a lot of places like Philadelphia have an enormous amount of talent running around and not eno- enough spaces that are low-key, low buy-in, you know, walk by and hear something and walk in the door kind of thing without mm-hmm. having to spend a lot of money. I believe that's needed, and I'm saying this as someone who covered music for a long time at all those other levels, not just as an interested party musician who wants places like that to exist f- so I can play. It's not self-interest. What I think is really missing in the the whole Whatever, however you draw the map of the infrastructure right now, what's missing is places where we're not asking for twenty dollars and nobody who's walking by needs to feel like they're getting shook down to come in. It's like, mm. come experience this. You know, we we talk a lot about the old Tritone on South Street, yeah, uh-huh. which yeah. was nothing special. It was a big, well, not so big, but a, you know, basically a club with a bar on one side and a stage with a PA on the other side and some folding chairs. But there was great music in there to be had. You didn't have to spend a lot of money to engage it. And what you had when you were in that room, especially if you were there more than once over the course of a month or two, was a real sense of what was going on in the community of Philadelphia and a lot of cities had those and they don't exist that much now and so you know it's like if you want to scale that whole you know like getting your, working your way up to festivals that's one thing and that's a laudable goal and I you know and I think a lot of people who are in the midst of working here in Philadelphia should be doing that and would thrive at that level but where we have to think at the same time we're trying to do that is how are we developing, not even audiences because that's kind of cliche, but just developing places where people can engage this stuff with a low buy in and and that they feel like they can like come into something that is open that's for them that's not like you know a fancy club.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the tritone was uh, that's a recurring theme in in the podcast i feel like so many musicians that i came up with that was the spot yeah and there was so and it wasn't just a jazz club there was so much random weird awesome music there truly like there'd be like there'd be like a death metal show one night and then you know Bobby Zankel's band would be there the next night and you know all kinds of kinds of neat stuff and there was a lot of crossover with jazz musicians like playing in in these differently genreed groups Totally. So, like, like one night you would see like a some like rockish ambient thing, and like, oh, there's there's a yeah, hey, he's a jazz guy. He's playing in this band tonight. Oh, cool, cool, cool. And um, yeah, yeah, I got a lot of a lot of really great stuff. And I think that actually was the first place I tried playing anything I wrote. Wow. Where I felt comfortable enough to just be like, okay, there's like three people in the room right now. Right. <laughs> Okay, we could test this out. But that's but,
0: important too, right? The, yeah, like the absolutely. idea that, you know, you're not doing it to clear a certain sort of door number. This is a place where we are coming for creativity. And the artists know that and the, the whoever might be in the audience or walking by knows that as well. And any more like this idea of like crossing out a day on your calendar that when so-and-so is coming to the Kimmel Center and you're spending, you know, however much money to see them, we're going to have that. And you're right. Live music's definitely going to come back. But that's one night. You know, you might do if you're lucky, you do three or four of those a year. But you got to feed your head the rest of the time, whether you're an artist or not. You need to feel connected to where where you live. And, you know, I mean, what's going on in Philly right now? on the music side of it is so incredibly rich. And the people who are here, people who have come here, who are living here now, who weren't here, you know, in the eighties or whatever are hungry for ways to engage that.
1: Yes. I Uh, want to switch switch gears slightly. slightly. Uh, We've Uh, kind of danced around it a bunch, bunch, but uh, you uh, are a music writer and have been for many years and, and I don't, necessarily want to call you a critic but i guess that uh, um other people yeah. have so that's yeah. fine <laughs> yeah yeah I, I feel like you know you're a music writer to me you're a music writer journalist historian thinker uh, i like those terms better but i mean we've talked about music a ton and i don't think i've ever really heard you like repeat yourself like describe things you know what i mean like you're always coming up with different ways to describe music which I think is very important for writing about music because it's very easy to just go yes this band is sounds like this other thing and this thing put together boom you're done you know which drives me nuts but it is very difficult to not do that so how do you approach writing about music and keeping it fresh every time
0: wow well um I'm not sure it always is fresh but one thing is this idea that the sort of breaking it down the way you're talking about X plus Y equals Z. When I was starting out in the 80s, I had an editor who used to work at Rolling Stone, and she was an incredibly tough editor. She was really my first editor. She taught me how to do this. I was living in Miami, and um, it's a long story and not very interesting, actually, of how I got started. But I ended up doing some writing for the Miami Herald as a freelancer. And after a few of these little concert reviews, she asked me to do some other things and started to really mentor me in a way that, you know, if I had not, I would not have been doing it for very long if she had not done that. Um, Mm -hmm. But that was her first thing. She was like, you know what? Everything, all the writing about music is lazy. It's like you're not you're not telling people anything if you name check two or three artists that they don't know. And, y- you know, you're not giving them a way into what they might be interested in. And so you have to assume very little knowledge on the part of the, the reader and instead just try to endeavor the best as you can to explain whatever it is that's going on. And that, just that, Like that idea of don't make these repeated comparisons to other artists. Don't don't like rely on the fact that everyone knows, you know, any name, any Beatles hit, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, try to be an advocate for music in a way that doesn't require the listener or the reader to have a broad knowledge of it. And instead, just figure out a way to describe it. it might spark someone's curiosity. And, you know, that I'm not sure I have always succeeded at that, but that really is it makes it a different kind of thing. And the other the enterprise isn't just, well, this is good and this sucks and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And here I am on in my special critic chair and I'm pronouncing on these things with a wand. It's really not like that. But I have a quote on my wall that I've always also thought about in this way, having to do with really evaluating art of any kind, but, you know, with music particularly because it is such an abstract phenomenon and it is related directly to the engine of feeling not the engine of intellect uh but the quote says you cannot have critics with standards you can have music with standards which critics may observe and nice that to me is the whole thing and to do that, you have to know a little bit. I, you know, I'm not one of these people that says every critic should be a musician. Everyone who writes about music should should have training in music. But you you have to know what the music itself is trying to do. When someone gets up there and plays Scrapple from the Apple by Charlie Parker, they are working on a very specific something. They're navigating a set of chord changes and a set of like sort of performance practice ideas that uh, need to be adhered to or it's not that music. And that mm-hmm. is what we have to do as critics and and or writers or and or advocates. And the thing now is that everyone who's doing this as a player, as a thinker, as a conceptualist about music is also in the advocacy business. As you know, I mean, this podcast is that and everything Absolutely. that you put on the uh, on the internet in any form is that. And Mm -hmm. it's like it's taken a long time for me to see that the the work of advocacy can be done uh, from people who are sitting on any side of the aisle, the people who are untrained, who just are enthusiastic and want to write about music, the radio people who similarly don't have a background in it, but understand enough to know what they like and want to share what they like, the artists, the audience that the artist's are trying to reach at every facet we are all advocates and right now more than anything else musician needs advocate music needs advocates music needs people who stand up for the idea of music not just their artists, you know, one. Of, I think the development that is the most concerning about the way music is discussed on the internet is that everything is its own little micro slivered tribe, and and like mm. you have people who only write about death metal talking to people who only read about death metal, and they all speak in the language of death metal, mm. and that happens in jazz. It happens a- across the board, and really, I- I'm a very curious listener. I've always wanted to hear anything and everything. And I'm, I'm really of the mind that for a writer, if you're doing this, you've got to be a generalist. You have to be, you you, you know, you have to sort of be open to whatever it is and be open to the possibility that the next thing you hear that blows your mind is coming from a part of the world that you know nothing about.
1: Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That makes me think of when, when, um, when I was first starting my career was at the really beginning of social media. Mm -hmm. And I recall either thinking, or I feel like a lot of people were thinking this, that social media was going to bring kind of a democratization. I don't know if that's even a word, but uh, that they were going to like, it was going to take down all the gatekeepers and everyone was going to have like equal access or something. I, I'm not exactly sure what I was thinking at the time. A lot time, of people did think that, yes. Yeah. And and, and look what we
0: got instead. Pitchfork. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But exactly. You, you said it right. Nailed it around the head. Now everything's super specialized. And now the gatekeepers are even more so, in a sense. Um, I think that.
0: I do. And I think that because they're more specialized and because they self-select who their audience is the idea of uh, in, an encounter with the unknown becomes less somehow it becomes diminished yeah. and all the great people that i read that i learned so much from there's only a few of them that are still practicing john parellis at the new york times i think is one of the best best music critics of all time and he is a generalist in the best sense of the word he you know if you look at any given month of his work at the new york times you will see stuff from several different realms of music, parts of the world, all that. But that is really, you, you know, it's like, I'm not interested in what the death metal guy thinks is the best death metal. I'm interested in what somebody who doesn't really know death metal thinks is the best, is, yeah, yeah, is yeah. the record to hear, you know? Who, mm-hmm. Who's like, had their world turned upside down by something that was a brand new encounter.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to bring up, I usually start the episode this way, but, um, we just got right into it, so I'll, I'll backtrack a, a second. I usually start out with how we met. Oh wow! And I'm pretty sure it was it was probably like a like a jam session at time. Yeah, like like the old 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 session where Pete was running it. Yeah, and was playing drums probably dur- during that time. And um, I recall a um, first gig we played together. And I'll, I'll share that story just as a, a lead-in to talk about your music, because we've talked about all things other people's music. I'd like to talk about your stuff uh, for a little bit. But the first gig we did together was a concert with uh, your group Ensemble Novo. It was at the Abington Art Center. Yeah. It was a it was a concert. I did not realize it was like a concert. It, you called me like last minute. Uh, last minute sub, emergency sub situation, and uh, and you nailed it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but uh, it was—I uh, I just remember like getting there and be like, "Oh, this is like a okay. This is a real concert. Like I—I d- I didn't realize that. And uh, it was my first time playing with Jim Hamilton. I think I knew Ryan. Yeah, Ryan McNeely. It was probably my first time playing with Ben Galice too.
0: Wow.
1: But uh, yeah, that was that was such a Uh, interesting um, experience for me just getting thrown into this you know high pressure concert situation which you guys made it super easy because you have been playing together for such a long time Uh, but reminded me of this quote I saw on the Jerry Seinfeld uh, comedians in cars getting coffee Mm mm-hmm I I watched this episode last night and I can't remember who said it one of his guests and it, was, it was either Brian Regan. Yeah, it was Brian yeah. Regan. Yeah. And he said that um, whenever you get butterflies in your stomach, like that's when you should pay attention because that's like the, the time you're going to remember.
0: Wow. You know,
1: you're, you're, you're in for a, an event in your life that you're going to remember. And that was like one of those for me, you know, going to getting to this gig and being like, oh man, there's a huge audience here. Uh, oh boy, this is what I thought, you know, I'm a little nervous now, but you know, I'll always remember that. And, uh, thanks for giving me the call. I appreciate that.
0: Well, thank you for doing it. And, and more than that, thank you for being like, so solid in, in that moment, because I think we had not been playing that long at that point. We'd probably been playing like a year doing the once a month thing at time. And I did not know enough at the time I think, you, you know, we hadn't had gigs where people subbed out. You might have been like one of the first subs ever. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, so I didn't have anything together like that. I didn't have like a, a folder of music that I could send to somebody by email to prepare. Yeah. Them. I didn't even know what we would play necessarily.
1: <laughs> and, <laughs> so you were in the same boat as me. <laughs> and,
0: and I remember after it going, wow, this was like completely a seat of the pants thing for everyone and that we were incredibly lucky that you were a cool head but also that like a little bit of it I think had to do with the fact that this music if you're a person who's sensitive as a listener if you're a musician who is sensitive as a listener there's something about the music of Brazil that really does like sort of dial you into a way to start or a way to navigate through it. It's, it's somewhat the opposite of jazz where with jazz, you, you bring your identity with every measure and with, with a lot of Brazilian music, it's like, okay, the, the music wants it to be this and then you find your identity within it. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how that group started and, and what you've done what you all have done since then? Sure.
0: So the start of it is actually not a very flattering story for me. I had not played music in front of people in 20 years. When I moved to Philadelphia in 1988, I had come from Miami. I had gone to music school. And in Miami, uh, when I got hired at the Miami Herald, they did not have a problem with me playing gigs because I had come through that world and I knew, you know, people knew me. It wasn't like there would be the potential for someone calling me up and trying to get a write-up by hiring me for a gig. But the opposite was true in Philadelphia. I didn't know very many people at all. And when they saw, when the people at the inquiry saw my resume, they were basically like, you cannot work. You cannot, no longer derive any income from playing music. And I didn't think about it that much at the time. I was very interested in trying to figure out a way to be a writer as, as a music writer. And this was a great opportunity. I was really incredibly excited to come to Philadelphia. And, you know, we, I had to sign this addendum that they made to the contract that said I wouldn't play professionally. But then we negotiated, well, you could go to a jam session. So I was lucky enough to be at Ortlieb's. You know, in the in the late 80s and early 90s, I met a lot of people that we know and love and play with uh, now there. But at a certain point, after a couple of years, I got really busy. I was freelancing for a lot of people and I stopped playing. I just stopped entirely. We had a baby. Life changed. And then long about 2008, I had been out of the freelance market for a few years and I'd written a book. And I was selling the book, but I was trying to rebuild my freelance business in the wake of the last real cataclysm, which was the economic crash of 08. And I wasn't having very much luck doing it. And I was an enormously frustrated person. I was like one of these like people where I was like, I had just spent 20 years doing this thing that was that I'd always gotten paid well to do. And suddenly I wasn't getting paid that much. And the opportunities were drying up. And I remember when I started at Rolling Stone, when I started to contribute at Rolling Stone, the reviews were 250 words long and they paid a dollar a word. I was like in that nice place of, you know, every two weeks I would have something like that for about 250 bucks. It was good money. When I... Left when I finally said, "Okay, this is not for me." The reviews were seventy-five words long, which is basically like a catalog description in a you know, like a LL Bean catalog, like one paragraph, very short, and Mm -hmm. they paid nothing, hardly. So I was like, "Well, if I'm if things are changing, I should you know do something else." And I began to practice again. And I did that for a while and eventually worked up the courage to go to a jam session. And I had known Mike Frank, like known him as a player. I never met him. And I went to the Milk Boy session in Ardmore. And I was not very good. I was really not ready to play out. But I didn't know that, you know. Uh, But they were all the people there were incredibly nice to me, including Ryan McNeely. And they were encouraging me. They were like, yeah, come back, you know. And, and Mike and I, like, you know, had a, a wonderful time either the first week or the second week I was there talking about all the times I'd seen him playing with Jim Bosia and other people and the moves fractals. And at that time, like, I, I didn't think that I was going to end up doing anything with this, but it was it was a way to focus my time. And the fact that those guys were willing to kind of encourage me. And they were like, come back, let's play some more. Meant the world to me in a way that I can't, I I really have trouble describing it because when I was their age, when I was in my early 20s, we thought we knew everything and we were not interested in hanging out with old guys who played music at all, you know? And I really think I would have had the opposite reaction if I'd have been one of them. But I was incredibly lucky. And long, uh, you know, long story short, we I started to come there every week and I went to a few other jam sessions. That's probably, you know, six months later is probably when we met at time. And uh, at that time, Tim Bray and some other folks were playing at the Triumph Brewery on second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a really nice session once a week. I I did that a bunch. And along the way, we come to discover that we both just love the music of Brazil. And I can't say enough about how much his how deep his understanding is of this music. I mean, he just has the all the the basic building blocks of Bossa Nova and Samba are in his playing. It's as though he took all the jazz Roberto stuff that birthed this music and he just sort of internalized it. And it's a phenomenal thing that he has. It's, It's a real gift. And so we would start, I would start learning tunes and I'd be asking him about tunes and he would tell me what keys to play them in and who did what and what keys. And we're talking about different versions of stuff. And so suddenly this music that I had been studying when I worked on this book and had heard for years, I started to really investigate as a musician again. And that's how Ensemble Nova started. I was like, you know, we can do something with this that has some improvisation like jazz, but it's not really jazz in the you know in the strict definition at all and yeah. these melodies are incredibly beautiful this this is just incredibly uplifting music this music has a lot of s- sensuality to it we, it's like i i was really interested in could we create something that in a group of four or five six people a small group really f- had the feeling of Openness that those great Joe Beam recordings have, that all those wow stuff has, and th- that's where we started. And you know, we've been lucky enough to play for four or five years now, doing at least once a month at time on uh, in a rotation on Wednesdays at time. And out of that, we you know, literally that gig was doing nothing but reading stuff and trying stuff out. And that's one of the things we're talking about live music and uh, at the beginning. That's one of the really important things that I think gets overlooked is that at every level of music, people are workshopping stuff. They're trying out tunes they've written. And, you know, we have a few of those of my tunes that we play and they're trying to learn approaches to playing other people's music. And that workshopping activity is almost always more productive in a room with real people, not in a a rehearsal situation. I mean, there's nothing wrong with rehearsal and it's great and it's necessary, but you learn something else when you're playing in a live situation. And, you know, we were incredibly lucky to have the chance to do that and test out a bunch of tunes, see what worked, see what didn't work, figure out what, uh, you know, what we would need to do as far as arrangement and how to you know, how to present this and out of that first jam session experience and then out of the chance to play once a month is we were incredibly lucky and we continue to be incredibly lucky.
1: Yeah, I I, I love your particular, particular take on the Brazilian music, music and also having the you know improvisational elements in there and you know, I've learned so much about uh Brazilian music from playing with you guys and Talking to Ryan, you know, I've played a bunch of, you know, duo gigs with him where, you know, going into that, you know, I I didn't know anything about Brazil at all. I just knew kind of like the Americanized bassa bass pattern. Yeah, Like, that's it. That's all I knew. And I was like, and from there, you know, I just kind of learned it all by experience and, you know, hey, check this out and check out this record. Right. That whole thing is so valuable to music and the arts.
0: Yeah, it is. And that's directly the thing of what we're talking about, about playing live. Once you hear it on a record, the next step of it is, how can I translate that to something that's internal to my music making?
1: Absolutely. So where can um, how can people follow you and see what you're up to? What, what would be the best way?
0: So we have a website for Ensemble Novo that's in dire need of updating, but it's ensemblenovo.com. And I have a a couple of different things. I write sometimes at Medium, and it's just under my name at Medium. And then also I have WordPress. I'm about ready to do some stuff with that. But we have recorded a bunch of stuff for Ensemble Novo. And uh, right before this virus hit, we were on our way to mix. And (laughs) we're sort of now in that holding pattern of, okay, when can we gather in small groups again?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, but we expect that'll happen, and uh, within the next month or so, we'll have some mastered recordings. And we're in the same boat as everyone, trying to figure out what the best way is to to share that stuff. I mean, we have mm-hmm. a page on Bandcamp as well, and we were part of that Amnesty Day of Bandcamp in the early part of this, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. Uh, we made some new friends that way and we hope people are enjoying that music that way and I bought a bunch of stuff that day all of these platforms it's like uh, I think you do have to be on all of them if people are just curious about Ensemble Novo and they just want to sort of dip a toe in our records are up on Spotify and the other streaming services but you know uh, you you shouldn't have to say this but you often do have to remind people well that's great but you know we we get like (laughs) 0.0001 cent (laughs) that way. Yeah. And that's part of what we're up against now. What needs to happen, it seems to me next, is a kind of a re-education program about what it is that artists do and how it is they get paid for what they do. Uh, It's big questions. Yes. 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 Yes.
1: And thank thank you for taking the time uh, and tackling tackling them with me. It's uh... (laughs) a... It's really good to talk to you. It makes me, uh, me want to play some tunes with you at Heritage.
0: And, I cannot wait. Hang I can't wait. And it yeah. was. thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure. And I love what you're doing. And this whole world we're in right now needs more conversation and more uh, dialogue. Uh, and I hope that any of your listeners, if they want to reach out, I hope they do. Because uh, to you, to me, to any of the, your other guests, because... You know, this is not like a one way transmission. And a lot of the things that we're all contending with now, and I put uh, an audience in the largest sense in that, is how to respond, how to be human in this world where we're not together and know that, you know, we know it's not going to be forever, but we also know that it's going to have kind of forever implications and it's up to each of us to figure out to navigate responses to that
1: thank you Tom thank Let's, you sir I feel, like that, I feel like that's a pretty good way to end it and uh, yeah man thank thanks, you, thanks again
0: How awesome thank you
1: thanks for listening to the Voice Equals Power podcast today's episode was edited by Mervin Toussaint If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, your voice is your power.